Let's um, open in prayer. Always seems to be a good idea. Lord, help us to understand your word. Help us to be, um, help us to have open hearts so that we might not be thinking about ourselves, but put all of our hearts, focus, mind, and strength on you. And we ask you, Lord, just to have your way, be exalted, and we just give you thanks for the location we're in. We give you thanks for fellowship, but most of all, we give thanks for who you are and what you've done in our lives. And we give you the praise and all the glory. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I was thinking about that um, last song that um, we did when he's got a couple of phrases. There. It's, by his grace I'm released. By his grace I am redeemed. That doesn't seem like it ought to be a hard concept. But it was a hard concept compared to what the Reformation said it meant and what pre-Reformation said. If you heard Martin Luther, any of his sermons before the Reformation, he could say things like, we're justified by faith. And you'd go, well, heck, that sounds like Reformation doctrine. But then you found out what it really meant. Grace meant it was sort of like an energy drink you drank the grace of God and it helped you to get started it helped you to do all you could do so that you could be worthy of salvation but that's not what it was after the reformation of course grace is short term for Jesus all of grace means all of Jesus. So, this is one reason why, and I can't remember what century it was. I mentioned this to Randy, I think. Joan of Arc, one of the, one of the reasons she was condemned, one of the charges brought against her was that she said she knew for certain that she was going to heaven. And they said, no, 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 no. Nobody can ever be assured that they've done enough. Nobody can ever be assured of their salvation. And so this was one of the great strikes against her that caused her to be killed. Anyway, that's just what came to mind when I was seeing what they were talking about with grace. Imagine... For a moment, where you would be, what your life would be like if the Lord had not redeemed you. Just take a moment. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have the same friends you have now. You may not have the same wife you've got now. I wouldn't. Everything would have changed. So just think for a moment about what it would have been be like if the Lord hadn't redeemed you. Do you think things would be slightly different? Or so different that it causes you to weep in gratitude for what Jesus has done for you?
You know, some people have had dramatic conversion experiences that leave a lasting mark, while other people can't remember a specific time that they haven't known Jesus. Whatever our story, the fact that you believe is evidence of the Lord's great work in your life. He loved us enough to seek us out when we were running away from him. And we need to ponder that thought over and over. We were running away from God when he called us. In the seventh chapter of Acts, we read about Stephen's words to the high priests and the self-righteous Jews concerning Jesus. And they were so incensed over his words for which they really had no answer, that they stoned him to death. Verse 58 in the 7th chapter of Acts says, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then the first three verses of the next chapter, Acts 8, read, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women he would put in prison. And then in the chapter chapter 9 of Acts, the first few verses, read, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then verses 19 and 20 say, Now for several days he, meaning Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Jesus changes everything. Saul of Tarsus was completely unwilling to follow Jesus, the Messiah, before God took the initiative. He was doing all he could to destroy the church, but when Jesus appeared to him, he was overwhelmed. By the Holy Spirit, 
Christ gave him eyes to see the kingdom of God and a heart of flesh to replace a stony one. If Jesus had not overcome Saul's natural inclination against him, there never would have been an apostle Paul. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, unless you are born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The spiritually dead cannot enter God's holy presence. In order to see the kingdom of God, then, the spiritually stillborn must be brought to life. There must be spiritual resurrection. Being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit brought an end to Paul's unknowing war against God. But his war against the world was just beginning. In many ways, the worst was still ahead. And that's the way it is with us once we've crossed from death into life. Being born again initiates a constant battle with the world and its values. The world may no longer be our home, but it's still where we live for now. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The greatest danger to the Christian is growing to love anything more than you love God. We need to remember that. The greatest danger to a Christian is beginning to love anything or growing to love anything more than you love God. Philippians 3.8 says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. We will never win the world by acting like the world. We put our faith in God because, among other reasons, he's trustworthy. He never calls on us as if there was no evidence or if there was no good reason for us to trust him. <coughs> Scripture is God's story from beginning to end, and it records his faithfulness that never ends. It's easy to talk about trustworthiness, the trustworthiness of God, but what about when believing God is one of the most difficult things we've ever been called to do? What about when God's promises seem empty and seem to be far away? If we bother to study his word, we can see God in action, and we can begin to realize that God values our character much more highly than he does our comfort. And at least in some, if not many places or hard times, God is building our character to make us fit for the kingdom and his purposes. 
Look at the Apostle Paul again. <clears throat> You'll see a life of many sufferings for Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul defends his apostleship. He says he's been beaten times without number, often coming close to death. He's been beaten five times with lashes from the Jews and dangers everywhere from many people, both Gentiles and Jews. He spent many sleepless nights, been hungry and thirsty, danger from cold and exposure, and the list goes on and on. What if Paul said, it's too much, God? I know what you said. I know you said you would never leave me or forsake me. But I don't see it. And I'm done. And just so you don't think that Paul was great was greatly different than we are, that he was somehow gifted so that he was different, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within us, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In the Old Testament, there's a long line of people that put their hope in God in spite of every natural reason not to do so. How easy do you think it was for Noah to spend a hundred years or so building an ark on dry ground when it never had never rained with everybody thinking you're crazy as a loon? How long would we have continued? One year? Five years? Fifty years? Surely fifty years is long enough for God to prove that his word is true. Noah lasted because scripture says Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Blameless signifies wholehearted commitment. It means to abstain from sin, not to be without sin. Perhaps for us, persevering through hardship also shows a wholehearted commitment to the Lord. When we look at people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see God testing those he calls one step at a time. You go through Abraham's life and you'll see this step leads to this, and this step leads to this, and this step leads to this. Each step leading you closer to believe God and to walk with God. With Abraham, the test begins by God calling him to leave his idol-worshiping country and family and go where God would lead him. Genesis 12 does not tell us why God chose Abraham. God simply chooses him, and as a result of his choosing him, he speaks to him and he blesses him. So who is Abraham? Why him? 
Why not someone else? The only answer is that it pleased God to choose him and not to choose countless others. That's unmerited favor. And in like manner, when God calls us, his word and spirit are at work in us to renew us after his image, not because we did something to earn salvation, but because God chose us. We're blessed by God, meaning God shows us favor, and that favor is unmerited. We don't deserve it. Abraham and every person facing the same defining decision, or face the same defining decision, how will I respond to God? First and foremost, God calls us to himself. He doesn't call us to follow rules, to bargain or earn his favor. God calls us to a relationship with him and into a deeper relationship with others. His call includes facing sin and our need for God. I need to repent or renounce forever former ways and it's not an option to God from the moment of God's call Abraham increasingly followed God's guidance though not perfectly God told him I will make you into a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great I will make you to be a blessing I will bless those who bless you I will curse those who curse you. I will make all peoples on earth be blessed through you. Abraham sinned at times. But God in his grace and mercy protected him. God promised Abraham a son. But many years went by, no son. In fact, Abraham waited from the time he was 75 years old when God called him out of Haran until he was 99 years old and Sarah was 90 that God, it would, God said it would happen the next year. So ask yourself, would you have remained faithful? Most people wouldn't. Do you know how many times I have heard and read about people that said, you know, I believed God and God said this, but after all these years, nothing's happened and I just, I had enough. I don't believe it. God doesn't give a time limit on believing it. He just says, believe me, I'm trustworthy. I've shown it again and again and again. I never lie. Live and believe in me. So would we remain faithful and believing after that kind of delay? Faith calls us to believe God can do anything. He can do the impossible. With Abraham's son Isaac, it's easy to miss the fact that he prayed to God for 20 years over his wife's infertility before seeing his sons born. What if Isaac had been unbelieving during the trial? 
We know God's plans cannot be thwarted by man's disobedience, but it's certain that Isaac would have grieved and displeased God if he had not believed. And what the consequences would have been, I don't know. But it sure would have been something that was totally detrimental to Isaac and his character from there on out. Jude 21 warns us clearly, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's no end to the people of God, or the people God called, to remain faithful during dark times. Joseph was sold as a slave by his own brothers, and he remained a slave or in prison in Egypt until God set him free to become the second highest ruler in Egypt and the savior of Israel. A long, long time in jail, God, where are you? Before that, he was a servant in Potiphar's household. And he got unjustly accused and thrown into prison. And all this after his brothers sold him as a slave. It was a long time. God didn't say, well, Joseph is my man. A month or so is going to be tough, but after that, everything's going to be fine, Joseph. Would you have thought that? If you'd spent a few years as a slave... And then even more years in prison, you wouldn't have thought everything was going to be fine. Keep yourselves in the love of God. David was pursued by King Saul for years after God had told him that he was going to be king. It doesn't seem likely that you're going to be king when you're hiding in caves to avoid being killed. Daniel and Ezekiel were both deported from Israel. But they remained faithful to God in the midst of a pagan and ruthless culture. So how are we doing in an increasingly anti-Christian environment? We're not in prison yet. We don't have people restricting everything we say and do yet. But what if we did? Would we say it's too much? I can't do this anymore. God, don't you don't you love me? So again, all the trials and hardships, doesn't God want us to be happy? He does, but He knows we can never find true happiness except in Him. The world is broken, and it's broken because we're broken. When we come to faith in Christ, God immediately credits us with the perfect righteousness of his Son. Our our position, clothed in Christ's righteousness, frees us from the penalty of sin we deserved. But spiritual growth is a process. Our practical righteousness, the daily conquest of sin in our thought and behavior requires a continual dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. The process is called sanctification. God delivers us from our sinfulness 
as he changes our appetites and conforms our behavior by the Holy Spirit. Only God can accomplish anything in us that pleases him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So the message is, don't be discouraged. God is at work in his people, and not just in hardships, but especially in hardships. He's changing us to be more like Jesus. Imagine what it would be like if you didn't know Jesus and God was leaving you alone in your sins. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you did not leave us alone in our sins, in our ignorance, in our unbelief, and on our death. But instead, you translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. And I pray that that knowledge, those thoughts, would forever be before us and cause us to have an eternally thankful heart. In Jesus' name, amen.